Right, welcome to the Conversations That Matter podcast. My name is John Harris. Today, we have a guest with us, a very brave guest, I might add, uh, Ilgen. And uh, Ilgen is a student at Trinity Evangelical Seminary, and that's uh, in Chicago, right? Did D.A. Carson work there? He used to. He retired recently. Yeah. So some big names, uh, at the very least. And so tell me about yourself. Uh, what, what made you want to go to seminary? Um, you know, tell me a little bit about your Christian testimony. So I, I grew up in a non-Christian home. And, but my parents were that classic liberal where they were open to new ideas. So we would visit different places of worship, like Buddhist temple, or I've, I've even been to a Catholic mass. Um, so we were open, uh, but we didn't believe uh, in a specific religion. When I was in eighth grade, I had an existential crisis because I, I realized what's, what's the point of working hard or, or studying a lot uh, if I'm going to just die anyway. Uh, I'll go to a good college. I'll go to, I'll get a good job, have a great family. But if I'm going to die anyway, there's, there's no difference between being successful and being a failure. Um, so I thought that life was meaningless. But um, there was a book uh, that I found that my mom's Christian friend gave her. Um, called Dinner with a Perfect Stranger. And it's a fiction of an atheist guy having dinner with Jesus. So I picked it up. It was a short book, and I started reading it. And what really struck me was when Jesus said, there's nothing you can do to get to heaven. And that was, uh, that was such a shocking statement because I've always thought that Christians believe that you go to heaven by doing good works then why do you go to church? Why give money to the poor? Um, but Jesus continued to share that our standard of goodness uh, just fails compared to God's standard of goodness. And no one meets God's standard of goodness except God. Um, and because of our sin, uh, God himself had to pay for that because he loves us, that he sent his son to die for our sin on the cross and that on the third day he's risen. And if you believe in him, um, you can have relationship with God. Um, and that's when I realized, Oh, that, that must be the meaning of life. I'm, I'm created to have a relationship with God. And the only way I can do that is by believing in his son. Um, so I became a Christian then, um, then I went to a very secular liberal college and studied molecular biology. Um, but I, I was, I attended a really good evangelical church where they were pre very conservative in terms of they were complementarian Calvinistic soteriology. So my doctrines uh, were shaped there. Um, and I, after college, I took two years teaching math at a Christian high school. Um, I still didn't, wasn't sure of my call to pastoral ministry. Um, 
But during that time, I had so many opportunities to preach. And every time I was writing a sermon, I, there was this temptation of injecting what I wanted to say in the text rather than just clearly uh, exegeting what the text is saying. And I knew that was a problem because that's what most false teachers do, injecting their own ideas. Um, and I knew that I can't just keep on sending my sermon drafts to pastors I know because they have their own sermons to worry about. Um, and, I, and I decided if, if I am called to ministry, I, I should really uh, go to seminary to, to learn how to correctly teach scripture. Um, so some, some of the helpful uh, influences were like Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, because his, his passion for preaching is just really, really uh, superb, right? I read his book on preaching and preachers, or preachers and preach. I think it's preaching and preachers. And when I read the part where it said, hey, if you, if you can't see yourself doing anything else, do that. But if it's in your heart to really preach scripture, preach the gospel and you, you don't see yourself doing anything else but that, then, then that might be a call. So um, I read that book because my uh, then girlfriend, but my current wife bought me that book. So uh, after that, I decided to apply to Trinity uh, because a pastor that uh, I knew back then, whom I really admired, uh, went to Trinity and he highly recommended it. Okay. So, so that's what brought you to Trinity to receive more education in the seminary so you could preach. And that's I think right. that's why most people or a lot of people want to go to seminary so they can um, preach the gospel and preach the word of God uh, in their churches. So um, that's a good story. I, so here's the thing. I, I want to make sure people understand this. We're going to get into kind of your experience so far at Trinity. And you're a brave man because <laughs> you, you challenged the social justice narrative that you've seen at the school. But I, what I, the impression I get is that you do this from a, um, a position of grace and uh, care for the school. You, you do love the school. You want the school to um, just be on the right track and consistent with the message that it's supposed to be promoting and teaching about. And, and you don't want to see that corrupted. And so this isn't something uh, where you want to bash the school unnecessarily. This is just your heart for correcting the school. And I admire that in you. And, um, and so I just want people to understand that as we, we get into this. Now, one question before we jump into Trinity real quick, um, Ilgen, you, you um, I, I know we, we had briefly talked about this before I pushed the record button, but I wanted you to share, I mean, do you believe that racism exists? Racism in the sense of um, people having partial thoughts or um, hateful thoughts about people of other ethnicities, all right? We'll just we'll narrow it down to that definition. Uh, which is the definition most people think of when they think of that term. Um, do you believe that exists? And have you ever experienced that? I, I do believe racism exists. Um, and, and I believe it will continue to exist until uh, Jesus comes back. And I, I would like to define racism as not something of systemic or, or type of sin that can only be committed by white people, because that's what I've been hearing these days, but racism can be committed by any type of people. Um, and I, I believe it, it still exists because we're all still 
um, sinning. Um, and I've personally experienced racism myself growing up, um, mainly because I, 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 I came from Korea as a fourth grader. And, uh, you know, kids can be insensitive and racist. Um, so I've heard people say like, hey, go back to your own country, you know, things like that yeah. as a kid growing up. Um, so I, I totally believe it exists. I've experienced it myself. Yeah. So so I think it's important we lay that groundwork uh, from the beginning, just so there are people that might be listening to this who want to just shut it off and say, these guys are just saying there's no racism. And, and there's a lot of uh, conflation between um, what we would consider to be partiality or really just hatred in your heart for someone else. I mean, look, it could be, I, I've said this before, it could be you don't like um, the pants someone wears and you're just going to give them a hard time for it um, because uh, of some hatred in your heart because of some external quality that you know they're displaying. Like it doesn't have to even be racism for it to be hatred and for it to be wrong and for God to see that as um, as as not loving your neighbor the way you ought to and treating someone um, as made in the image of God. We get that. We understand that. It's wrong. It's evil. Um, but today we see a different narrative. We see using um, word like racism then to uh, hammer people in quote unquote majority culture right. and to ascribe to them this sin when it's not necessarily something that's even in their hearts or something they've committed or uh, it's just by nature of their identity of who they are they're even if they're just their skin tone um, they're somehow guilty of a sin that they're not actually guilty of and that's what we want to jump into so I'm gonna let I'm gonna let you take it away um, I, I have some notes here and with your permission I'd like to actually uh, share these notes with those who um, may want to look at them uh, from uh, who, who are watching this, but um, you, you kind of do this sequentially, the notes you sent me. So why don't you talk to me about your first semester and kind of that, that moment that you were exposed to, um, I would say the whole gospel as they call it, which isn't any gospel, it's the gospel plus social justice. What was that like? Yeah. So during my first semester, the classes were really solid. I was taking Greek and Hebrew, and I was learning to exegete the text. That's what I signed up to do. But there was a chapel service uh, that really questioned my understanding of the gospel. The good news of Jesus liberated us from all kinds of servitudes, from internal oppressions, our sin, which blind us, which make us selfish to the core, in the words of Martin Luther, incorvatos in se. But Jesus also wills us to, re, to liberate us from external enslavement. That is those that dehumanize humanity and the consolidation of human sin in the structures that we create. Those external enslavements are the myriad of social injustices and miseries and abuses and violence and idolatries of money and power and sex and ethnocentrism and racism that we face. When this chapel speaker included social justice as part of the gospel. And as you know, uh, I was saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ, where the word social justice was never mentioned. Right, and I've been sharing the gospel of what Jesus has done to my friends, and I've never mentioned social justice. Mm -hmm. So to to find out that, wait, if social justice is part of the gospel, then 
I've been doing an incomplete work or they're really wrong. So did you really have that, that moment where you were like, wait a minute, did I, did I get the gospel right? Have I erred in some way? Yeah. And, and, and I, I, I had to talk to some of the professors I trusted about it. And one of them made it really clear that the gospel is only about the vertical reconciliation with God through what Jesus has done. Um, if, and, and it, the horizontal reconciliation only occurs when people's hearts are changed, right? It can't be part of it. The vertical has to come first. Okay. So, so this is interesting. And this is what I want people to hear from you is that, you know, there's a lot of people in your position that go into seminary, they have a good heart as far as wanting to understand the text and preach it. And then they are exposed to this holistic gospel, as some have called it. And they don't know what to do. This is someone in authority telling them. In this case, um, it was a professor uh, at your school. Um, you also included, uh, there's a tweet here from the professor who seems to indicate that he, he does believe social justice is part of the gospel. And, um, right. and, and this is an authority figure. And, and you, you got to figure a lot of these students who want to understand deeper what the Bible says and they respect their professors, this is tangling them up in knots or they're just going to follow their professors down that path. Did you see that with other students? Oh yeah, definitely. Um, I think the student population is more into this than the faculty as a whole. Uh, there are still professors at TEDs who are really solid in this. Um, my New Testament professor, when I talked to him about this, he's like, well, that makes no sense because the gospel is of Jesus Christ. It's what Jesus has done. Not, it's not something you do. It, it can't be anything you do, right? That's the good news. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it works to the gospel. It's pretty basic stuff. Do, right. they give, do they give those professors, like your New Testament professor, a platform to disagree? Or does, is it just one narrative that you constantly hear? It, from my experience, it's been just this narrative. Uh, and it's only getting worse and worse, as we'll see. Because yeah. the first semester was pretty good for me. So what happened second semester? The second semester, uh, the whole chapel series became social justice. It, last semester, it, uh, the first semester, the whole chapel series was on the book of Judges, which was really good. Um, and only one chapel was uh, on like social justice. But the second semester it was the whole uh, chapel series on racial reconciliation a number of our anglo members of the church approached this pastor who's non-white and asked if there might be a time in our next worship service where a number of our anglo brothers and sisters in light of what they heard from the preaching wanted to have a public time of prayer of repentance so the pastor calls me up and says, how do we do this? I never learned this in a worship liturgy class. So that very next Sunday, that's what happened. This Anglo brothers and sisters would come out. And they would face the cross at the front of the altar. So their back would be toward us. Into the microphone, they would be offering this really heartfelt prayer of repentance as a person who comes from dominant culture, white privilege, white power, some of the things that they were not even aware of before, and how they have 
commit a sin of omission as well as commission. Many prayed the prayer of a personal repentance. Some repented for the family that they grew up in. Some repented for the state of the city of Chicago and of our nation. And this is the beloved community chapel series? Yeah. Okay. And, and so you, you went through uh, a bunch of these different chapel series. And it, it's, your response is interesting here to me. You aren't like most students. Like most students, and you know this, they, they just kind of accept what they're taught and move on. They don't challenge anything. And this is one of the reasons I like you is you, you say that you asked the student body president to start an online survey to find out what the student body thought of the chapel services. What, what happened with that? I was getting frustrated because I didn't want to attend chapel anymore because I would be hearing things that are just flat out wrong. Um, and and I, I've noticed that even uh, the chapel series, uh, people, students weren't attending chapel. It was getting fewer and fewer. And even more so, professors were not attending chapel. Really? Yeah. <laughs> that's actually, that's interesting. So the, their own school that's paying them money to teach that they don't even want to go to chapel. Um, okay. Only a certain group of professors who agree to this, right, who are fans of racial reconciliation in this unbiblical sense, yeah. are attending chapel. So, um, so the students, so, so is less, less students, less professors attending chapel. And were there other responses when they started trying to figure out why this was the case that were kind of like yours, they were negative on the series? Yeah, so they didn't uh, think about doing a student survey at all. And I, I don't know why. So I talked to the student body president about it. And uh, he said, okay, yeah, let's, let's have a chapel a survey. And they did get the responses. Um, and from what I hear, uh, a lot of them were negative. Really? And, and the, the chapel committee was like surprised. <laughs> they were like, why, why is this so negative? So this is an encouraging thing. If you are going to an evangelical seminary like Trinity, but it could be a different one, and this stuff is being pushed on your seminary, which no doubt it probably is, you're not alone. <laughs> there are a lot of people out there who they don't know what to do necessarily. They might not be challenging it overtly, but they agree. They don't like it. Um, I found that to be the case when I was at Southeastern as well. And so, um, so that's, I, I'm glad you shared that. You also talk about in your second semester, this um, Mosaic talk uh, by Mark mm -hmm. Charles. Tell us about that a little. Mosaic is a student group that exists on campus. And it's, it, it usually shares something uh, that's, I don't want to say controversial, but it is shocking. Every semester they choose a topic that, that will, um, that's very debatable. So this time I believe they chose uh, probably racial reconciliation or but this specific video has a Native American speaker, uh, one would say theologian, sharing um, the matters of systemic sin, corporate sin. Our, our, our Sunday school theology is pretty messed up. 
And so when I ask the question, whose blood covers corporate systemic sin, I want you to think about this. Is it really Jesus? I know that's the answer you've been told, but is this what the church believes? Is this what the church practices? Um, and what's really surprising is that systemic and corporate sin are just assumed to be true. Doesn't like, argue for it. You're right. There's, there's no debate. It's, it's more of an echo chamber of, well, yes, it's true. So how do you, you know, you have to deal with that. And for most students, I mean, I can't say most, I don't know how many, for, but, but for a student like me, like, how, how do I repent of sin that I did not commit? I want to tell you three stories. I was speaking at a, at a conference, and I was laying out, like I did last night, the systemic racism, white supremacy, sexism over foundations. I was laying out our history of slavery and genocide of Native peoples and slavery of African people. And through my talk, as I was laying out these documents and these numbers, there was a, white, a young white man sitting near the front row of the, of the center, and I could tell he was distraught, and what I was saying was really impacting him, and he was getting more and more bothered, and he was really struggling kind of spiritually as he's hearing some of this history for the very first time. And during the Q&A, he, he was one of the first people that raised his hand and asked a question, and he was kind of talking and rambling. He was trying to get his thoughts together as he was talking to me, and he was going, jumping here and there, here and there, and I could tell after about 30 seconds that he wanted to apologize to me. And as he was talking, and he was getting closer and closer to breaking down in tears and asking for my forgiveness, I finally said, sir, I have to stop you. Let me tell you what's going on for you right now. You are a white American, and you have a highly individualistic worldview, and you are hearing for the very first time about the systemic corporate sin of your nation and your church, but you don't have a corporate theology. And so at the moment, 500 years of dehumanizing history is pressing down on your, soul, your shoulders, and the only thing you can think about right now is how am I going to go to sleep tonight? And so you want to break down in tears in front of me. You want to ask for my forgiveness. I, of course, in a public setting as a Christian man, have to forgive you. So now you can go home to your house in the suburbs tonight, and you can go to sleep knowing that you heard about this injustice, you repented of it, you've been forgiven of it, and now you can sleep tonight. I, meanwhile, will get on the plane, go back to the reservation, and have to deal with all the dregs of this injustice, and nothing will have changed. I said, I'm not mad at you, but I don't want you to ask for my forgiveness. You need to sit in this brokenness for all. You don't even understand the extent of what's happened. And you need to just sit there for a while. And I gave him the tool of lament. If I haven't committed these actual racist sins or, or pick whatever category you want, then what, what am I supposed to do about this other than stand against it where I see it? But um, I, I want to get into this third semester because this is where I think it gets really interesting, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. uh, th this is where 
it, it just, it's, it's so obvious and you start really challenging things. And, and I, I think the reaction of the school is very telling. Um, so tell us what happened in your third semester. Yeah, so there's a course that every MDiv student has to take at Trinity. And it's called Understanding Social and Cultural Context for Ministry. So it sounds pretty logical. I think pastors should understand the social and cultural context for ministry, right? How to teach and preach in a postmodern context or in the liberal context. Or how do you, how do you preach or teach through uh, the gender issue? homosexuality so so sort of an apologetics bent is what you were thinking that's what i thought but none of that none of those things were actually focused or i don't even think we ever talked about homosexuality or gender transgenderism that's shocking to me (laughs) yes so that was not mentioned but it was mostly on race um like one speaker so they, they had some guest speakers one speaker actually defined racism as um, sin that can be only committed by the uh, oppressor group. So that's critical race theory. That's, oh, yeah. that's all that is. That, that is just the assumption that you must have power in order to uh, exert racism somehow. And yeah. if you don't have power, you can't do it. That's, so they're teaching critical race theory at Trinity in some quarters, mm-hmm. at least. Yeah. Um, and we would learn about immigration like in the 1800s right and then and and then the speaker um would share well like the italian immigrants were treated worse than the uh you know other anglo immigrants because their skin's darker (laughs) and that baffled me because well i know that the irish immigrants were treated worse too and their skin's really white. I was going to say, that, that's news to the Irish because, yeah, I, I, I grew up actually in upstate New York and about an hour and a half north of the city. And uh, a lot of my friends growing up were Italian and Irish people. And uh, so it's, it's in the local history, of course, um, kind of what happened during immigration. Uh, but, yeah, I, I've never heard that. Um, in fact, uh, the, I mean, there, every group that came here had barriers they had to overcome. But the Irish are well known to have had a barrier when they first came to the United States. And it's, that's interesting. It sounds like it's a, an assumption. This person is just, I mean, he didn't, did he have evidence to back this up or was it just his own? No, it's, it's, it's just really about feelings, you know? Yeah. And when I would challenge something, um, even some of the students would get mad. Um, <laughs> I would say, well, God well, bless like, you. <laughs> And it wasn't like I was yelling. I just questioned like, hey, like, we can't just assume that uh, this house in an African-American community, the price went down because of the community. Because the time frame you're showing includes the housing bubble that popped in the 2008-2011 area. Like, you, you can't say that this was because of the skin right. color. Yeah, right. and if you look through history and the only thing that you want to look at is, is ethnicity or race, uh, then you're, gonna, you're not going to make the proper correlations. You're going to have tunnel vision. You're not going to see the other events that are taking place that could affect um, different regions. And so that's a good, very good point. And 
I, I have to ask you, what kind of textbooks did they use or reading material in the class? So one of the main textbooks that we used was Michael O. Emerson's Divided by Faith. Of course. <laughs> of course you did. <laughs> that is the go-to, uh, probably the first book that people read if they're going to go down the social justice road in evangelicalism. Uh, it's part of the woke canon at this point. So was, so, so was that one of the main books then in the course? Yeah, that, that was one of the main books we had to write our main paper on. Um, How'd that go for you? Did you get marked off? Oh, man. Yeah, so when I finished reading the book, or even when I started reading the book, I was concerned, like, how, how do I write a paper? Uh, so the prompt is given where it's like you interactly, interact closely with these three works, uh, divided by faith, more than just race, a, and a spacious heart. Um, and we analyzed the nature and extent of racism that permeated in our culture and society. And then identify ways through which attitudes and practices of racism have influenced individual Christians as well as Christian communities. Um, and then you offer one or two specific steps that church can take to uh, be prophetic in this divided world. So, and, and being prophetic, is that uh, basically bringing a racial reconciliation program to your church? Right, right. So it's not going into the world and preaching against the sins of the world. It's, it's more bring, coming into your church and um, telling them about historic systemic injustice and what they can do to correct these things. Right. Um, and, and, and the shocking part was we, we weren't really given the option to disagree you see the prompt is very forward. Like it's assumed to be true. All the things that you learn from divided by faith, how are, uh, analyze it and show so that racism is permeated in society. And then one or two steps to show that you can use it in the church. Like there's, there's no room for disagreement here. Now, um, Ilgen, I, I wanted to share with you now, and I and here if you had the same experience as I did, but in secular uh, undergraduate, you know, college, we were required to take a course. It was called, I think at the time, social problems in today's world. It was, it was kind of a sociology course, but every single major had to take it, which is interesting. If you're a math major, you had to take this course. Yeah. Um, nothing to do with math, obviously, but, uh, it was meant to, it, it sounds very similar to this class where you, I remember one of the assignments was to go out and look for examples of racism, <laughs> And yeah. I mean, this is 10 years ago. And so when I started, when I went to Southeastern, another uh, Southern Baptist seminary, and I started seeing similar things to what I had learned in that class, I thought, oh, no, my, my teacher was a Marxist. She, she was pretty open about it, too. She said, yeah, Marx, Marx knew what was going on. His analysis was yeah. correct. And um, anyway, in that class, it, it was the same thing. America, from the beginning, it, it was awful. It was built for the, the white a straight male, um, of course, homosexuality did play a part in this class. It was, you know, heterosexual normality was a problem. Right. And, and then um, how do we change it was the only question. It was never, there was never a, uh, a point in the class where you could challenge the narrative. And right. say, are, are we really understanding in all the complexities of this huge country that we live in, uh, what's really the case? Or, or are we giving a cartoon, you know, Kind of a flat picture of what this country is like you couldn't even bring up nuance it just wouldn't wouldn't happen and so um 
And so the conclusion at the end, of course, was it's revolutionary. And I remember a friend of mine had a different uh, professor teaching same class. And at the end, the, this was during, uh, he, he took it, I think, a few years after I did. But his professor said, all right, class, this week I want you to, as if it's an assignment from the instructor, vote for Obama. As like it was a class assignment. And so um, anyway, not to get off of my story because I want to hear yours. But is, I mean, when you were hearing these things, did it bring you back to undergrad at all? Were you thinking, wait a minute, this is the liberal stuff I heard when I was an undergraduate? Oh, yeah, yeah. Man, I would even say my undergraduate uh, would actually allow me to disagree. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, yeah, I went to a school that's um, very liberal um, in the Bay Area, right? Oh, and they were goodness. All about free speech. You're, you were <laughs> yeah. in the Bay Area. Uh huh. Okay, yeah, that. <laughs> so it was very antagonistic to your Christian belief, I'm sure. Right, but at least I could speak my mind there wow. yeah and write a paper disagreeing without having to ask yeah so the professor for this class uh told us in class you know for this class i don't want you to dissent uh i want you to uh just write it because this is not like a uh research paper you don't have enough time for it you don't have enough you know space for it because it only has to be five pages i don't right. want you to dissent. but then when i read that book i just could not in good conscience, actually not dissent. Um, well, I respect you for that, for challenging this and, and getting marked down, it sounds like, or at least um, yeah. giving a little bit of a hard time for it. Yeah, and, so, so I, I did email him, like, hey, like, in my good conscience, I can't write this paper unless I dissent. And then he graciously let me dissent. Okay. But, um, yeah, he did not like the research that I did to write that paper. Did you get marked down or, or notes in, in the, the margins disagreeing with your analysis? Oh yeah, definitely. Um, for, I mean, I've, I've, re I've done some research reading works by Walter E. Williams, a famous economist, um, Thomas Sowell, another famous economist who works for the Hoover Institution of Stanford um, Charles Murray, um, and these economists, uh, they look at the data from the government departments, like labor department, right? And then they analyze how the social programs that the U.S. government instituted actually had a worse impact on the uh, Black population because it incentivized various um, ungodly behavior, like uh, having kids out of wedlock and the government would pay for that, right? right. Pay more money if you have more kids um, or not holding on to a job because they would give unemployment benefit. Yeah, um, you know, it, it's interesting. I did this uh, analysis of Phil Vischer's video a few weeks ago where um, he takes, what, 20 minutes and goes through you know, this is the history of America. It's all just systemic injustice and racism. And, um, and I took almost two hours and I just went kind of carefully through his whole video. And, and one of the things I, I tried to point out and, um, and some of the economists you mentioned, I was looking at as well, where they're just, they're looking at numbers and they're analyzing data, which is, I like that. Right. Um, 
And you know, one of the things that was left out of his narrative, and I'm curious if it was left out of your class, is um, labor unions, of course, mm -hmm. very racist in the early part of the um, 20th century. Uh, of course, you had the eugenics movement, scientific racism. Uh, you know, Odebango was in the Bronx Zoo. You had um, Planned Parenthood, obviously, uh, you know, very racist. Margaret Sanger, uh, at least was. That was one of her purposes for the organization. Um, you have uh, the, um, the minimum wage laws and how they adversely affected, uh, and, and not necessarily a racist intention behind them, but they just ended up adversely affecting. Oh, yeah. Uh, black people, and then you uh, young people, and then you have, uh, you know, they, they always blame Nixon, but it really was LBJ who started the war on crime. And, right. and, and I, I just find it fascinating. They try to get to the Republican to blame the Republican. And, and so anyway, um, they, they skip over the great society programs and, and how those adversely affected the black community. And, and the thing is, um, if you're going to tell the story of quote unquote racism in this country, or at least, or if you're just even going to redefine it and say, we're just going to tell the story of disparities. Um, mm -hmm. You would think that you'd want to focus on those things. You'd mentioned the labor unions, Planned Parenthood, minimum wage laws, and you know, the great society programs. And it's left out of the narrative. Like, and, and the, the thing that I realized, I said, I thought to myself, the, the thing that connects all these things is these are all Democrat, like <laughs> uh, either there were, Democrats were behind these things, or they are current um, groups that the Democratic Party caters to, especially Planned Parenthood and labor unions. And so um, all that to say, you know, was that, were those holes in your class as well? Did they talk about those things? Yeah, only in terms of good things. Like I, really? I did minimum wage in my paper, and then the professor commented, well, like the minimum wage in Australia is like much higher. And they seem to be doing fine, which I, I don't know how that can be a good argument for minimum wage working. Like, we need to actually look at how Australia is doing. You know, we can't just anecdotally throw it out there. It's working in Australia, so it must be fine here. What about the Great Society and, and welfare programs, etc.? Yeah, I mentioned that, and he called it too reductionistic. Um, and he, he recommended some other sociologists uh, to look at. And uh, what's surprising was he, he called data and uh, analysis by Thomas Sowell, um, Walter E. Williams, and even Charles Murray uh, as they're not quote unquote empirical. I, I, I don't know how sociology can be more empirical <laughs> than, yeah. than economists. See, this is interesting to me uh, because this is this shows you that the concerns that are being um, that, that are platformed at a place like Trinity and other secular and also non-secular seminaries across the United States, they are only bringing a new left critique to bear on the situation they're claiming to remedy or they want to remedy. They're, they're, they're leaving things out. There's holes in their narrative. And, and then these are the holes that you'd think a Christian, of all people, a Christian who believes man's depraved, who, who understands that um, you, you can't just throw money at a problem and get rid of a problem necessarily. Uh, there's hearts, there's evil hearts involved. 
you can't incentivize sin and then right. <laughs> and then expect good results. You'd think a Christian wouldn't miss these things, especially right. in parenthood, right? Abortion. You'd think a Christian would look at that and say, well, that's, that's happening today. I'm going to talk about that. But, but these are Christians who aren't talking about those things, and they'd rather talk about the things the Democratic Party is so mm-hmm. concerned with today. That's fascinating to me. What, what are your, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think, I don't know whether it's, I, I'm sure there are unintentional people who, who do not know the impact of uh, the social policies, social programs, welfare programs. They, they think they're actually helping out the poor, right? But then there are intentional people uh, who are just flat out ignoring the facts. And um, I, I, I don't know why they're pushing their agenda. I don't want to assume motivation, but... I partly it might be the fear of man. You don't want to be canceled by the liberal right out wing, right? The moment you say that you go against them, you, you can be called all sorts of names. Yeah. Yeah, I understand that. It, it, but this is this is something the church should be concerned about because future pastors, they are drinking this stuff in. Mm-hmm. And they're going to a church and they're going to teach the whole congregation. This is how it gets into the pews, the working class people. They're teaching them that they're racist because they have majority privilege, uh, that this country uh, is racist. And, that, and, and that solutions to these things aren't necessarily Christian solutions. Welfare programs are good. Right. Um, minimum wage is good. So th- this is something that I think it's good that you're shining a light on it, showing that this is being taught at Trinity. Now, when we get into your um, fourth semester, this, I mean, I think it started getting interesting in the third semester, but this to me, like I have so much respect for you. Um, you wrote to me that your pastor and, and yourself, you, you both tried to start a dialogue on campus about these issues. I, I have so much respect for that. And I want to hear all about that. How did you go about this? What were the results? How did the campus react? So my pastor and I, um, well, I shared with my pastor all that's going on at TEDS. Um, and he's a TEDS graduate from the 90s. And he was shocked, right? And, and, and he told me, Ilgen, this can't be just staying, um, you know, in your class and you just writing a dissent paper. I think uh, the truth has to get out. Like, we have to have a platform for the truth because... Mosaic gets a platform. How come, you know, the conservative voice, the biblical voice cannot have a platform, right? Um, We need to have a voice against uh, this idea of structural racism. Um, But our first platform was going to be against uh, this idea of white guilt. Um, The idea that uh, people are guilty of sin of racism because of the color of their skin. Right. Um, And it's just so unbiblical because how can you repent of your skin color? Uh, And I think in the end, it's it's an insult to God because who made who made who chooses someone is born white or not. Right. Mm. God. Um, and, And 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 if you like consider what else do we need to repent of if we're thinking like, well, we have to consider the historic sin, but every ethnic group has done something wrong to another. Uh, so like, how far do we go? We can't just go back to the, you know, 1800s. 
1700s? I, you know, and I don't know your story at all, but um, I know we, everyone in this country, right, came from somewhere else. I know my family going back, we came, uh, well, I have different lines that came here, but um, I have relatives on the Mayflower. They were escaping persecution uh, in Great Britain. And, and perhaps, uh, you know, I don't know if you have the same kind of story for your family escaping some kind of oppression from somewhere else, but um, that's the story of this country. Right. And, and so it's every ethnic group, every ethnic group's involved in this uh, because we're all human and we all have sin and that's part right. of it. So, um, so tell me about your first topic what was no white guilt and social justice. I mean, you guys just, this, I mean, <laughs> I love you guys for doing this. So you're, you just decide we're not even going to tiptoe around it. We're just going to say no white guilt and social justice. How did that go for you, trying to reserve a room and get a crowd to come and see you talk about this? Yeah, we, we didn't want to be, uh, we didn't want to trick people into it, right? If we were to just say like, oh, it's a platform on white guilt and social justice. And then we, we present our view of like, no, we don't believe in that. Then that's just lying. So we wanted to be forward and say, no white guilt and social justice dialogue, right? Uh, I was able to reserve the room, which was surprising. And even the uh, person who's working, uh, the administrator who, who, who was uh, handling room reservation, like she personally emailed me saying, oh, that's like, this sounds like a great idea. Uh, like to have a discussion on campus. So we got the room reserved for a specific date. But then for some reason, the poster can't pass. So it's like the room's there, but the poster can't pass. And that's because the Dean of Students found out about it. Hmm. Um, so and the, yeah, was this a problem for other groups? Not really, because I found out after I'll share with you all these uh, problems that the Dean of Students had with my poster. Um, those problems weren't considered when it, when it was a, of an event, when it was an event for another thing, a thing that's not related to no white guilt and social justice. Okay, so, so there, there's different, <laughs> the Lord hates <laughs> different weights and measures. So there, there's mm -hmm. different standards being used here. Uh, to judge your poster for advertising versus the poster of um, other groups. I had to write all these down because there were so many criteria that we had to meet. Um, and those criteria, they would change. So my pastor and I, we had an in-person meeting with the dean, and this was before COVID. And so first thing he, she tells us is, see, the problem with your poster is it has to be sponsored by a student group or a church, right? So my poster didn't have a student group or a church's name on there, right? So I was like, oh, okay. And then the pastor, my pastor who was sitting right next to me says, oh yeah, yeah, our church can do it. Our church is approved by Trinity for internships. So we, don't, we probably don't even have to go through so many hoops. Like we're approved by Trinity for internship. We're yeah, yeah, that's a high level of trust, sure. Yeah. Um, and so, <laughs> but the moment our, my pastor shared that, she changes her mind. She's like, oh, wait, 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 that's not a thing. Church can't sponsor events. We, we don't have a thing. <laughs> right. Like 
it, it was during that meet, meeting in, in terms of minutes, like in minutes, she changed her mind. Interesting. And then, and then she said, if you don't have a student group, uh, you have to have a faculty sponsor that event. So right after I go out, I found two professors uh, who were willing to sponsor it because they are concerned about social justice and critical race theory, right? Right. Because um, white guilt is totally related to critical race theory. And, and when I told them, uh, you know, yeah, your name has to be on the poster, and they were fine. And it, it, uh, the professor even wanted to meet with the dean to talk about wh why, why is this so hard, right? Mm. But then the dean said, oh, I can't meet with the professor uh, until this date, which was after the meeting, after the room, res uh, the date in which we were supposed to meet, like the date in, uh, when, yeah. when we had the room reserved. So it's like... <laughs> so so you okay. not, did you ever get off the ground with this? Um, yeah, we, it, it had to be just by word of mouth and online invitation. I would just copy and paste all the emails from different classes and classmates so that yeah. hopefully they come. How did it work out when, when you had it? We, we had about like um, 10 students. You know, that wasn't a lot. But we had uh, some people from my church come in support of it, like 10 people from my church come. So it was like 20 people discussing this. So, yeah, I'm sure that that puts a damper on it when you don't have the whole might of the school. I mean, the school can send out emails to the whole student body at once. They can right. put posters up on campus. They have those screens that you know, will put announcements up on these screens. And not having that, um, I'm sure, very much uh, affected you. And, and that's disappointing to me because the seminary, um, of course, the academy in general is supposed to be a place of uh, debating ideas. But the seminary... Uh, especially for people like yourselves who are concerned about what the Bible says, and mm -hmm. you, you share the orthodox, uh, I'm, uh, I'm assuming you both subscribe very strongly to the statement of faith, um, you, you would be brothers in Christ. There should be no problem with brothers in Christ who are involved, you're paying to go there, pastors accepting interns from there, from, from using the facility right. when other groups can. That, that's, it's shocking to me that a seminary um, would give such a hard time to people like yourselves. Um, and so we get into, so, so I, I first commend you for, for doing that. Most people won't go that far. Um, and then of course, COVID strikes, right? So right. <laughs> you, you can't do anything anyway. I'm sure the classes probably went online and then we're, we're up to the summer now. Mm -hmm. um, tell me what's happened since then. What's happened since uh, holding this event um, at the school? Since holding this event, I've, I've seen uh, multiple posters and I, I had pictures shown that did not meet the requirement that I was given, right? Like, there's no professor's name there. There's no professor sponsoring the event. Uh, one of the first posters on um, the Idiot Book Club, right, uh, right. Is, has a church email. So that's church sponsorship. How come we, we couldn't have that? Interesting. Um, and it's approved. So like the second picture has the stamp of approval there that we couldn't get. All that happened, but COVID hit. So it but, and then we had the Black Lives Matter stuff. So I'm assuming right. they're on the social justice train. Trinity had to have, did they have some kind of a live stream or response to Black Lives Matter? Oh, yeah. We had a public lament. 
Oh Lord, you search us and know us, and your word tests our hearts. We confess the fears and prejudices that run so deep. And um, I was taking a summer class called Worship and Pastoral Practices, and we were required to go um, because it was during class time. We confess our complacency, our despair, and our unwillingness to hear those crying for justice and true peace. In this way, we deny the power of your gospel to restore and to unite us. Um, so we went, and there are leaders of the campus, like the president, deans, um, and um, the chapel director, and they're all leading this uh, public lament. Lord, we confess our failure to love brothers and sisters from all races and cultures. We repent of failing to confront racial injustice and failing to learn to do right, seek justice, and defend the oppressed. Have mercy on us. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. And so th this lament takes place, and, um, and, and it very much sounds like some of the other laments we've heard from the evangelical world. And beyond that, I mean, it, this is the secular Black Lives Matter stuff, Christianitized. That's what it seems like. We've mm -hmm. seen this kind of stuff at Black Lives Matter rallies. Now, you're, you're going to be going back to school this fall uh, at Trinity. You have, what, what do you say, one or two more semesters? Two more semesters. Two yeah. more semesters. You are a, you're very brave because I could see someone maybe possibly being brave enough to, after they're graduated, you know, when they don't have to go back and face these people saying something, but you're saying it now. And I know you're saying it in love. You, you care about the school. Um, I, I'd like to, to hear a, a couple things from you. Number one, your advice to students that are in a similar position to you. Uh, at, they, they just want to understand the Bible and they're getting fed this stuff. Because um, I think that you have some good ideas here on, on you know, holding an event with your pastor, uh, challenging this stuff in class. So that's the first thing. What can students do? Uh, the second thing um, is how can people contact you and support or pray for you? Um, and so if you, if you would just wouldn't mind telling us uh, some of your thoughts, because um, Christians are funding this stuff. We need to know what we're funding. We need to understand that this is when we give our money to the propagation of the gospel, the seminary education, some of it's going to this stuff. And so tell us, uh, what, what can a student do? Yeah, I think students should first and foremost know what is correct. Don't just buy into what they're hearing. Like our standard is the Bible. Um, the, the, the only reason why... I started disagreeing with these things was it just repenting of historical sin did not match with the Ezekiel passage of father's sin or guilt passing down to the son. It's like, why, why are we doing something that the Bible is speaking out against? Um, so we, I think as students, we have to know the Bible, uh, you know, in, in fact, better than some of the path professors. Um, when I push with scripture against my professors, they can't really argue back. Um, 
I've, I've had a professor say, I'm glad you're paying attention in your Old Testament classes. That's all they can say. They can't push back on like, you know, um, I, and I, I can share with you some, some of the writings I've done um, in arguing, like arguing against white guilt or things like that. Like, like blog posts or just? Uh... Uh, well, I don't have a blog, but I can share the Microsoft Word. Yeah. Uh, Why don't you do, do this? Send those to me. And those who are watching this video, you can go to the info section on this video and you're going to find some resources. Uh, you scroll down to the bottom, you'll see more resources. You'll see uh, some of Ilgen's, uh, his work on this. You'll see um, the notes uh, that, that, that he sent me uh, for the timeline of kind of his experience so far. Um, where if people want to reach out to you, maybe you don't want anyone reaching out to you, which is fine. But if people want to and you're okay with that, where can they find you? Um, so I don't have any social media, but I can give you my, um, email. Okay. So we'll uh, put that in the notes as well then. Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, and, and I think the students, they have to speak up. Uh, we're, I think we're too late even sometimes for many seminaries. Uh, we, we have to speak out against this. Sure. Like graciously don't, don't, don't do the same thing. The writers do bring truth. And, and, you know, there have been many students who tell me after class, like, hey, thank you for sharing that. Or thank you for speaking up. I really like what you had to say. Um, but be more than that. Um, speak up because I think there's still a lot of people with sober minds in class at church. But, but I think the uh, institution has to know that that's this is not right and right. the only reason they know is when people speak up absolutely yeah well Ajin, i appreciate so much uh your bravery your time um your your heart in all of this and uh i'm looking forward to seeing what what god does in your life um well Jin Cho, you're you are an mdiv student at the trinity um, evangelical seminary people um want to pray uh for you or contact you you, you can obvi obviously pray for <laughs> they can pray for you no matter what but if they want to contact you the email is in the info section and so are some of your blogs so thank you so much for sharing that with us thank you and god bless you have a good day you too sick of being upsold at gyms my guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a Swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.